Welcome to episode one of ALS Allies. I'm your host, Casey Powell. I've had the privilege of working at the Duke ALS Clinic for the past several months, and I've interviewed all clinical specialties, which has led me to some incredible insights. Today, I'll introduce you to a variety of the clinicians who make this facility so special. We'll talk about the team dynamic, stories of specific patients, how patients are diagnosed in terms of specific conversations, common patient family dynamics, dementia patients, and last but not least, areas of societal change. I'm excited to be here with you, and let's get right into it. For those of you who don't know, ALS is a neurodegenerative disease that slowly kills motor neurons in the brain. Motor neurons are responsible for motion, such as one's arms, legs, or mouth. And patients with ALS experience this disease in different ways, but often lose physical function and or speech capabilities. There are medications available to delay the disease progression, but there is currently no cure. ALS has a dramatic effect on not only the patient well-being, but also the caregivers who must spend time and resources caring for their loved ones. The Duke ALS Clinic was founded by Dr. Richard Bedlack in 2001. A unique aspect of the Duke ALS Clinic is the multidisciplinary approach to patient care. Clinicians of all different backgrounds, including doctors, nurses, physical therapists, occupational therapists, speech language pathologists, uh, dietitians, just all backgrounds come together to collaborate and maximize patient outcomes. And throughout this podcast, I'll introduce you to a variety of the clinicians who work at the clinic. But first, I want to highlight just how important this team environment is, and it's something that was common through a lot of the interviews. So first, I'll let Sarah, a nurse practitioner, introduce why the team dynamic is so critical to the overall clinic's performance. I couldn't do my job without the team. Yeah. I really couldn't. Um, you know, I could probably put something piecemeal together, but it wouldn't be the same good quality care as it would be with the whole team. And it's, it's great because I can, you know, say to Sue, our nutritionist, hey, I have a concern. We're not getting enough calories. I thought about this. What do you think? And she can tell me. She's been doing this, I think, as long as I've been alive. <laughs> right? So yeah. someone who has all of that experience is just invaluable. You know, some of our nursing staff has been working as a nurse longer than I have been alive. So their expertise and knowledge is, again, invaluable. It's so important to have everybody together. And then when you have something really hard, so we have a patient that has become dear, that we've all become attached to, who's now at the very, very end of life, you have those great relationships with your team members to be able to talk about it and have them help you through that difficult time of this patient who's now become dear to you passing. This sentiment was echoed by all of the clinicians. And I wanna briefly highlight a speech and language pathologist also named Sarah, who said something very similar. We would all agree we would not be able to do our jobs to the quality that we do without the team dynamic. Let's begin our deep dive into ALS with a few stories of particularly impactful patient interactions. First, Dr. Bedlock will introduce his journey from his first encounter with ALS to when he opened the clinic and began interacting with patients. You know, just to take a step back, I mean, my, my story began when I was a resident at Duke. It was the first time I'd ever come across a case of ALS. And I thought it was the most amazing and most terrible thing I'd ever seen. And I was especially sad when my attending that I was learning from came in and said, this is what it's called. We don't know why it happens and there's nothing we can do about it. You just have to go home and get your affairs in order. And I just remember driving home that day and thinking there's gotta be a better way. So I started traveling around the country throughout the latter years of my residency and my neuromuscular fellowship. And I started talking to people who were taking care of patients with ALS at other places. And I took the best practices of those places back to try to build a program that incorporated the best of everything that I saw because I wanted to give people with this disease options that would allow them to live the best life they could and also research options that would give them some hope. And so in the beginning of my career, I was really focused on science. You know, what do we measure? Who's the best person to measure it? What do those measurements mean in terms of specific options? And it was probably three or four years in when I, I met a young man, he was in his 20s, 
I walked into the room. He was sitting in his wheelchair, youngest person I'd seen at that point with ALS. And he was surrounded by at least a dozen other 20-somethings, all wearing the craziest outfits with, you know, mohawks and piercings and covered in tattoos. And as I as I talked to him and learned about his, you know, long family history of ALS, he had the genetic kind, I was struck by the fact that almost everyone in the room had at least one swallow tattoo. In fact, the patient himself had a whole sleeve of swallows. And so when we finished talking about the disease and what things we had to offer, I asked about the swallows and told me about his mom. She died from ALS when he was real young. He never knew her, but she left him a book and on every page of the book, she'd drawn one swallow. And when he got to be old enough to get a tattoo, he got every swallow from the book tattooed on his arm to kind of honor his mom's memory. And then when he started getting sick, everybody kind of knew what it was. Everyone he knew got one swallow from his arm and they called themselves the often awesome army. And they told me that day they were going to come together throughout the disease. They were always going to be there as an army. They were always going to keep it positive, keep it hopeful. And they did. And it was so amazing. I never realized how important that was, that hope. It was never something that was taught to me. And, you know, toward the end of his life, I, I told him how much he taught me and got one of the tattoos, got a small little tattoo here on my wrist. And, you know, I, I got it right there because it, it pops out and it reminds me of that guy. And it reminds me that not everyone has an army to keep them hopeful. So, you know, the science is important, but the hope is, is something so much more that I think is something may, that I may be most proud of in our clinic, that we're able to create a more hopeful atmosphere. And I hear that all the time from patients and families who've been to other places that, you know, places, many places have large teams now, many Many neurologists are really good at the science of ALS, but not every place can bring that hope. The environment of hope at the Duke ALS Clinic fosters strong connections between the clinicians and the patients. When I spoke with her, Meredith, a speech-language pathologist, shared a particularly powerful story about a patient she saw from the beginning to end of his journey. Probably one of the first patients that I saw here that I really that I, I, I really saw kind of from the beginning of his diagnosis, and I mean like when I say beginning, like he came in walking and talking and, you know, had very mild symptoms um, to, you know, to the very end when he wasn't had a, had a trach and eventually died. Um, but I remember him so well, again, because I, it, it was one of the first patients that I kind of saw that whole progression, and he was young, and I think that also had a really big impact on me. Um, I wa we watched him actually come with his girlfriend when he first started coming. We saw them then, she was wonderful, we saw them get married and they would bring like, pictures in and that was like really exciting. So there were like steps along the way, like even though this was progressing and really sad for them, they would like come to clinic and share their wedding photos with us. Then they had a baby, <laughs> wow. and then they would like bring they would bring the baby to clinic, and we actually watched the baby grow up like over a couple of years. Wow! And um, yeah, and so it was just someone that again I think was in a lot of ways probably a beloved patient here for to a lot of people, but one that I will never forget just because um, I think it was one like I said it was one of the first ones, and um, it was great to be able to have experience experienced some joyous things when they came to clinic and I can remember his girlfriend saying I love these clinic days because she said we get you know we have this attention and we feel special and we feel noticed and seen and she loved being I mean she really felt safe and heard and special here so yeah they had a lot of, they had a lot of impact on me. The clinicians strive to make the patients feel cared for and supported. Amanda, a physical therapist, shared a story of a patient who came into the clinic on her birthday. So there was one interaction that I like saved and I wrote it down because it was so touching to me. The patient, they were there for their first evaluation, their initial consult with the neurologist and with the, with the team. And it was actually like their birthday week. And uh, I think like their birthday was the following day. And I was like, you know, it could kind of had completed the valuation. And this patient, unfortunately, was pretty far advanced in their disease by the time they got to us. Either they had progressed quickly or, or for whatever reason, it had taken them 
some time to get seen. And so I told the patient, I was like, oh, I'm really sorry that you have to be here, you know, this long clinic day, you know, on your birthday week. And the patient who was no longer able to speak, so she, the, she was communicating by writing on a tablet, said, no, this was the best birthday gift I could ever ask for. And she said she had like gotten her, her appointment moved up. So there was a cancellation and she had been um, moved up. And she said, I was afraid that I wouldn't be here by the time that my appointment was scheduled. So I'm so glad that I am here. And I just like tear up just thinking about it. But that notion of like how grateful that person was to just be there and then how big an honor it is to be a part of that and to help a person in that way was just a, a really touching moment. Individuals with ALS have the opportunity to plan ahead for a peaceful end of life. Stacy Asnani, a social worker at the clinic, shared a recent story of a patient under the pseudonym Mr. Forbach who discussed his final wishes. On Tuesday, the last patient, Mr. Forbach, he's the older guy who was a sociology professor, yeah. um, very in tune. And, you know, his son was there, who's an ER physician. So they have sort of two different perspectives, like one from a social side and one from a medical side. And, you know, talking about maybe some of the not so bad things that this disease provides you, the silver linings, which was we were in there talking about, you know, his end of life wishes, very end of life and postmortem wishes, which is, you know, I want cremation, but I don't want it to cost a fortune and I only want a cardboard box. And, you know, I want to be environmentally friendly because I drove a Tesla and that's really important to me. So he said being able to have those conversations in not a lighthearted way because it is very serious, but you can talk about it without this fear of if and when in the future. This is something that's likely in the very near future. And it's sort of liberating to be able to talk about it in that way. And there are very few diseases where you get the opportunity to tell the people that you care about that you love them and how much they mean to you. But you also get that in return, which is you get to know how much people care about you. And, you know, that maybe you take opportunities to go and do things you would not have normally ever done in your life. Next, I want to transition to discussing how individuals are diagnosed with ALS and the types of conversations that clinicians have with their patients. Dr. Bedlake outlined how new patients should be diagnosed and reassured in terms of the reality of their disease. Yeah, so I think, you know, when, when you make the diagnosis of ALS, first of all, you should only do that in a face-to-face -face visit. There should always be someone with the patient. You should explain the disease fully. And what I mean by that is, you know, not, not sit there and tell people that everyone with this disease, you know, lives two years, go home and get your affairs in order, which is how I heard it explained to somebody when I was learning. Stephen Hawking, that's the way he was diagnosed. You probably saw that in the movie, The Theory of Everything. Sadly, it's still what we hear from patients who've been other places, that this is how they were told. It's, it's, not, it's not only wrong from a humane standpoint, it's actually wrong scientifically. You know, you, you can come up with some averages. So 50% of people will live three years without being attached to a breathing machine, three years from the start of their symptoms. But you know, 20% live five years, 10% live 10 years, 5% live 20 years. And there's example of people like Stephen Hawking who live 50 years. There's even a handful of people, 58 that I know of from around the world who look like they recovered from ALS. And so what I tell people is, you know, most patients do progress. Most patients become more disabled. More, most patients have a shortened lifespan, but how fast that happens is wildly different. And there's no way that I can look at you today and tell you what you're gonna look like in a year, two years, five years. What I will do is promise to try to make you the best you can be today with medications, with equipment, with exercise, with nutrition, with a multidisciplinary team approach. I can promise to give you options, research options. If we can't find a trial, we'll try to find an expanded access program. If we can't find that, I'll give you some ideas for things that you can self-experiment with that I've read about that I think are exciting. But um, we're not going to get too far ahead. 
if we see something that's coming in the next couple of months and we need you to be thinking about that and talking to your family about that, we'll bring it up. But, but again, we're not going to get too far ahead and have conversations about things that might or might not happen in five years. When a patient is newly diagnosed, they speak with each of the clinicians about their area of expertise. For example, Meredith, the speech-language pathologist, brings up voice banking. Voice banking is when you record your speech so that an iPad or device can form sentences in your own voice if you ever lose speech capabilities. The sentence speech pathologists focus on swallowing capabilities and speech capabilities. It's important to have preemptive conversations. Voice banking is probably one of the most important things to talk about. And when I bring that up with patients, um, I'll often say it's almost kind of like, I'm going to talk to you about this way before you need it. And sometimes people are like, whoa, I'm not ready, I'm not ready. But I say, you know what, it's like insurance. You get it way before you need it, just in case. And so I think when, if, we, if you can kind of frame it like that, people are more willing to, to consider it. Um, but it's so important for people to at least know that's an option while their speech sounds really good so that um, they, can, they can have that as an option. So it is hard to talk about, but it is important to bring up. Sarah, the other speech-language pathologist, emphasizes how patients may feel overwhelmed with all the information. So it's important to ask if they'd like to receive further details. Meredith was my supervisor five years ago when I was a grad student. And one of the most valuable things in this clinic, I think, was asking a question if someone would like to receive information rather than just piling it on. So with voice banking, I'll kind of give a spiel and talk about maybe its benefit very briefly so I'm not just talking at somebody and then saying I have more information about this would you like to hear about it and more often than not people will say well sure but I think just that verbiage that you know Meredith had taught me to use really helps people to be a little more open to receiving it rather than just walking into a patient's room acting like the expert and saying here are all the things that I know it's going to be way harder for them to, to hear that information. So I think just even how you present information in a clinic like this is really important. At the clinic, all of the clinicians try to use this approach to interacting with patients. Amanda, the physical therapist, describes her process of adjusting recommendations as a patient's condition progresses. For some people, you know, early on in the disease, they're you know, they have a, a bit of weakness, but it's not really impacting their mobility quite yet. One of the biggest things that we can help with is giving them advice on exercise. So there's a lot of older information out there. Maybe they've been told by another medical provider who's not quite as up on current research that they shouldn't exercise at all. And that can really affect people very negatively, I'm just like emotionally. If you're an exerciser, you enjoy being active and you're told that exercise is harmful, we can provide that counseling and saying like, no, exercise is beneficial and here are some guidelines and things to look out for. So that, that can be a huge relief to some patients who, who have been told otherwise and that can bring, give them back some like quality of life. If somebody's further along, then we can help them with assistive devices. Say they are not quite sure what they should be using for walking. We'll prescribe different assistive devices, test them out, make sure that they're appropriate for them. A lot of times we're recommending ankle braces or other kinds of orthotics to help compensate for certain weakness in the foot or ankle. And then all the way towards the later stages of the disease, PTs are kind of pivotal in this clinic in helping the patient get powered mobility, so custom power wheelchairs when walking is no longer functional or safe. And then also helping train caregivers on how to assist with mobility, assist with certain range of motion or other types of exercises or transfers to, to care for their loved one. In terms of nursing support, the team of registered nurses and certified medical assistants works together to ensure patient comfort. Loretta, a registered nurse at the clinic, describe some of the comfort care measures that her team provides. Usually a new diagnosis is very hard for the patients and the caregivers to hear. They get so much information on those new visits from all the different specialties that a lot of times when nursing comes in, particularly towards the end of the visit, 
Sometimes they'll have a question for us that we can answer or we have to defer it back to the provider and bring the answer back to them. Um, a lot of times they may be crying or upset and that's where you're more comfort measures, you know, getting them tissues, giving them a chance to talk if they're wanting to talk or if they're wanting to be just, you know, if they're just tearful and distraught, just giving them that space. We might make sure the door is closed, particularly within an area where the other patients walk by more. Different parts of the hall are easier to see in the rooms. Um, we try to make sure to have tissues available. It's kind of anything that they need in that moment of human care. Along with the nursing staff, the whole clinical team makes themselves available to care for the patients. A particularly challenging aspect of ALS is coping with death as it approaches. Sarah, the nurse practitioner, talks about framing her goal in terms of providing patients with a peaceful and meaningful end of life. So I like to view my care as providing a service. So I'm helping you be as functional as possible, as independent as possible for as long as we can. And when we can't do that anymore, we shift. And when that shift includes comfort care and end of life care, we're meeting a different goal. So the goal isn't now independence and function, the goal is a peaceful, meaningful death. And I am okay with meeting that goal. There's a lot of people in healthcare who do not like that. They don't like having those conversations. The goal is to fix, so they work in professions where they're fixing people. That isn't ALS. It's not, yeah. This is not something that I'm realistically going to fix right now, certainly. Maybe not in the next 10 years, who knows. So keeping your expectations appropriate, right? You're not going to fix it. So I don't come to work thinking I'm going to fix this person because I'm just gonna set myself up to be upset and disappointed. So I come into work thinking my patient is going to have a complaint, a problem, a concern. If I can address that concern and make that one problem better, then I have done a good thing and it's a good day. When patients know they're nearing the end of life, it can be very challenging to cope. Amanda, the physical therapist, talks about the importance of sitting down with patients to acknowledge and reaffirm their feelings. I try to come to it in a place of humility and knowing that I'll never really understand where that person is at that moment, but I try to put myself, you know, as much as I can in their shoes and to make it really focused on their goals. You know, like what, what's most important to you at this point? And if being able to, you know, sit upright to interact with their family or to eat a meal, if that's the most important thing, how can I be part of helping you achieve your goal? The flip side of that is sometimes people have goals that maybe are no longer very realistic or they might actually lead to them getting injured. So we have a lot of people who understandably want to continue walking as long as possible. And while I would also love that for every patient to be able to walk for as long as possible. That often leads to falls and falls with injury. And so that's, that can be a very difficult conversation to counseling patients like when it's no longer really safe to, to walk anymore because that can be a big threshold of loss where someone's no longer able to walk um, or have to switch to using the power chair full time. Another approach to assist patients who are struggling to cope can be offering mindfulness strategies. Melissa, an occupational therapist at the clinic, gives some examples from her experience, especially for patients with mental disorders like anxiety and depression. Although Melissa's work primarily centers around assisting with everyday activities, she also offers mindfulness approaches in conversations with patients. Just having a, a conversation with the, with the patient, seeing what they're already doing, if anything, how their anxiety or depression is impacting their function, and then teaching them some strategies that can be helpful to manage symptoms. So mindfulness strategies, so like deep breathing strategies, or just focusing on being able to, you know, change their thoughts on certain things or their, you know, how they're thinking about things. So that would be some examples of things I've, I've done in the past. Another technique to support patients who are struggling to cope is using humor. Lily Cola is a social worker for the North Carolina ALS chapter, whose primary role at the clinic is to inform patients about the grant opportunities and offer loaner equipment if needed. In these conversations, Lily uses jokes, like one about sending smoke signals, to engage with the patient. You know, I always share like, you can either call me, email me, smoke signals. I won't see your smoke signals, but you get what I'm saying. 
you know, just keeping it light too, because that's one thing with ALS and just motor neuron disease in general, you have to have a type of humor and you have to have like that type of, you know, that comfort and that feel because, I mean, each case is truly different than another one. Also, patients sometimes feel mad and express their anger in different ways. Sue, a registered dietitian at the clinic, emphasizes the importance of active listening. She describes how patient-centered and objective conversations can help patients make well-informed decisions, specifically in the example of a patient deciding whether or not to get a feeding tube. Sometimes the patients are angry. <laughs> so just trying to, you know, calm them down, um, you know, talk to them, listen, make sure you listen to their point of view and their thoughts. On, on the, I think sometimes listening is a lot more um, helpful than actually, you know, giving your opinion, just listening to them and letting them vent and, um, is helpful. Um, so just, you know, like today, for example, there was a patient who she is trying to decide whether she wants a feeding tube or not, and the family really wants her to have one, but she really doesn't want to have one. So just trying to go through the pros and cons of getting the feeding tube, what it's going to mean for her, not necessarily the family. So just to talk through all that is, um, is part of what I do. Um, and just helping them to, just by talking, just helping them to cope by talking to them. Not like a clinician, just like a normal human being. Sue also mentioned how her priorities for patients shift as they near the end of their lives. Specifically, she provides reassurance that the ultimate goal is to make decisions that ensure comfort to the patient. If I know that a patient is nearing the end of their life, I will basically reassure them that they don't need to keep pushing the calories. They don't need to, you know, just eat for comfort and drink for comfort. Don't push yourself into eating more, drinking more, because I know that it's gonna be more difficult to get that in. Um, if they have a feeding tube, I will tell them, well, if you're feeling uncomfortable, drop back on the amount of feeds you're giving. Don't give yourself the full amount. Just give yourself enough to help you to feel comfortable and give you a little bit of energy because the, the role at that point is not to fully nourish them. The role is to help them to feel comfort while they're passing. It can be really tough as patients near the end of their lives for both their caregivers and the clinicians. Loretta, the registered nurse, describes how someone she knew before ended up at the ALS clinic and eventually passed away, which was a really difficult experience. It's hard to swallow at times because you get used to seeing them and usually, depending on which provider they see, they typically come in about every three months. Some of them are a little bit longer between visits, but typically three to six. So you get, you know, you get used to seeing them and wishing them happy holidays, then you see them back after the holiday. And they usually have stories to tell if they've been with their family, but it's hard when they pass. And particularly, we've had a few patients come through that I knew personally outside of here before I found out they were diagnosed. They were diagnosed somewhere else and then came to us. And that was hard when I found out they passed away, but their family still comes to the ALS walk, which is actually how I found out because they had updated their t-shirt to show that she had passed away. Loretta also describes how a lot of patients with very limited time left fear hospice. By debunking some common misconceptions, she's able to enroll patients into this in-home support program. There's a really common misconception for hospice that if you put on hospice, you're going to die right away. That's not really accurate. The, the way the, the law kind of goes is that you have to have a condition that could claim you in the next six months, reasonably. ALS could definitely fall under that. So it covers you for care, but if you get to the end of six months and you're still with us on your ALS journey, then there's you know recertification paperwork and you continue the care. And, that process continues every six months and sometimes folks are on it for years. Or they're at a kind of a plateau and they don't qualify and then something happens and they go back in to hospice and that's okay. We just wanna make sure their care is really supported. A lot of times conversations with patients about hospice can be really challenging for clinicians. Lily, the North Carolina ALS chapter social worker, describes a recent discussion she had with a patient and how important it is to give that patient space to vent. This one family, they 
found out that they, you know, that hospice is, you know, one of the things that is being recommended. And, you know, they're telling me, they're just like, she has to be put on hospice. The room felt heavy and it felt like, you know, definitely processing. And I kind of give that validation and that comfort of like, you know what, this is, you know, you match it how they are. You don't want to at all tell them how they feel because what they feel is 100% valid and they should feel how they feel. But, you know, in that situation, letting them simply talk, I feel a lot of people, they don't listen. And so providing that space of, hey, I want to, you know, you don't say, hey, I'm going to listen to you, but, you know, just provide that space in a way. And I was able to kind of give that information of like, you know what, I had the same thoughts when I heard about hospice. You know, when I heard about hospice, I hear this is the end. When really hospice is a way of providing additional support, additional services at the home, which can be very beneficial. It's really important for patients to be made aware of hospice once they qualify. And Dr. Bedlock describes how he provides patients with information about this option. Also, he discusses a tracheostomy, which is an alternative where someone has a surgical procedure and then becomes attached to a ventilator, which is an external breathing device that keeps them alive when they otherwise would not be. And he describes some of the benefits and the costs associated with both options. Because if someone gets a tracheostomy, then they no longer qualify for hospice because they're no longer dying. So patients are often faced with a difficult decision about what to do when they approach the end of their life, and they need to be as informed as possible. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the main times when I'm going to start rolling out specific numbers are when I feel like somebody is, is getting to the end of their disease and we have some decisions to make about how aggressive they want to be medically and about whether or not they're willing to, to work with a group called hospice. So um, there's a whole bunch of things that I'm paying attention to, absolute measurements like forced vital capacity, how fast a person is changing. But in general, if I see that someone's forced vital capacity is approaching half of what it's supposed to be and they're changing pretty quickly, we start to talk about, hey, you know, what's happening to your body now? You're not taking nearly as deep a breath as you need to to get rid of carbon dioxide. So hopefully by then, you know, we've already talked about breathing exercises. We've already talked about simple breathing uh, equipment like non-invasive ventilation. And, you know, if, if that's not enough, then we start having a conversation. Do you want to ever be attached to a breathing machine that would force you to take deeper breaths? We explain, you know, that that can prolong life, but it's very difficult life. Um, it doesn't stop the disease from getting worse. It just keeps you alive longer. And you may get to a place where you can't move. And if you get there, that, that could be tough from a standpoint of your quality of life. You know, some people, some people can still find joy in their life when they can't move. Many people can't. It can also be very difficult on your family. Most insurance companies do not pay for much help when a person gets like that. And so it becomes a full-time job for families. It can't just be one person because you'll need 24 seven, you know, supervision and care when you get like that. So it's gonna have to be, your whole family would have to be trained. And I've seen some pretty devastating things happen to families who've taken that on. On the other hand, most people don't choose that and instead choose to work with a group called hospice who can come out there. They can be an extension of me and my team. So I, I, I'm not turning someone over to hospice at that point. I'm still going to be their main doctor. It's just that now I have hospice resources coming out to the home and aid to help with self-care, a nurse to help me assess what's going on medically, help me to aggressively manage any symptoms that might be making a person uncomfortable at the end, social work, psychology, sometimes even chaplain services to help patients and families you know, with the coping uh, mechanisms that they may need need to get through the last part of the disease and you know I mean one of the things I'm proud of I, I hope someday I'll have to cure for ALS but in the meantime one of the things I'm proud of is that most of my 4,000 patients that I've seen in the past 22 years have had a good end to their disease what do I mean by a good end I mean they and their family kind of knew what, what to expect um, they were prepared they were well supported by people in the home. Um, the end of their disease came comfortably where they wanted it to come. For most people, that's in their own home. For some people, that's in a 
respite facility in a hospice. But it's just really important to anticipate and have those conversations when the time is right. So things don't hit people unprepared. You know, you don't you don't want one of your family members to walk in and find their loved one blue, not breathing with no pulse and not having talked about what to do, what not to do in that situation. Now that we've had a chance to discuss conversations between clinicians and patients throughout the stages of ALS, I want to transition and focus on patient-family dynamics. Specifically, ALS puts a significant burden on a patient's caregivers, which can affect the relationship between the patient and their loved ones. Lily Cola, the North Carolina ALS chapter social worker, describes how ALS sometimes can bring people together, but also can create tension. Uh, The dynamics, sometimes, you know, it's definitely good or bad. There may be someone who's been strongly independent and now they have to move in with their family member, you know, and so that dynamic kind of can be a little bit difficult because, you know, everyone's readjusting to living together. You know, some family members don't get along and, you know, it can be good, but it also can be pretty difficult. But, you know, that's what's, you know, definitely beneficial of having those, you know, the homemade private duty agencies, either skilled nursing facilities, things along those lines, because some folks kind of would rather prefer that. Whereas some folks are kind of just like, you know what, I want to be living on my own, no one's going to help me. But then that adds that frustration of that caregiver to where, you know, I want to help out. How, what can I do? And just trying to provide that support for that caregiver, but also those pals. So you don't want to try and you want to definitely, again, create that space for everyone to talk and hear each other and kind of like mediate, but still trying to provide a helpful way for everyone to still mingle together. Because the bottom line, it can't just be an, an adjustment too. These new living situations are often stressful. Stacy, the social worker, explains how sometimes a parent with ALS minimizes their needs and distances themselves from their loved ones to avoid burdening them. A new patient uh, lives by herself, states away from her one child, a daughter, and really is trying to protect that adult daughter from what is going on by by minimizing. I'm fine. I can do it on my own. I don't need you to come and be with me all the time. You go live your life. I will manage fine. And what they end up doing is trying to distance their loved one, parents in particular with children, adult children, trying to protect them from the worst of it. And the dynamic that happens is Typically, that child wants to be involved. They feel an obligation to be involved. This is my parent. They're dealing with this devastating illness. I am coping with the premature loss of a parent more than, you know, sooner than I would expect, but also feeling pretty helpless with the fact that I live multiple states away. I have to work. I have a family. I have guilt because I can't be there. The other one's going, no, no, it's fine, honey. I have it. I don't need you to come but she really does. And so we see this dynamic of, okay, you're trying to protect your child. Your child wants to help you, but you're not letting them help in the way that they can. On the other hand, the child may be overbearing and put additional strain on the parent with ALS. I see the parenting your parent. The parent knows what they want and they may not want anything. Um, they may want to do things their own way. Their kid may not agree. Their kid says, no, this is what I want you to do. This is what you need to do. And the parent goes, I'm the parent here. This is what I want. You may not agree with it, but this is what I want. So we kind of have to start with, okay, who's in control here? Who has the ability to make those decisions? Are there any concerns we have about that? Or is this really just patient autonomy and we need you, you need to back off as a kid and let your parent be an adult. We see that a lot. There are also many situations where a patient used to be a caregiver but now has to receive care, or where the patient was always in charge of the home but no longer can do so. Sarah, the nurse practitioner, outlines how these common situations are particularly challenging for patients and their loved ones. The one that 
always sticks out to me is the patient who used to be a caregiver. So they used to work in healthcare, they were a nurse, they were, you know, medical assistant, they did something in a caregiving role, now needing to receive care. That's always really hard. Yeah. It's very hard because they want they want to do, they want to be independent, they want to manage their own, you know, everything and they can't and they need help and they don't want to ask for help because they've always been independent. I can do it, I'm fixing, I'm caring. So that's always tricky. Um, some other dynamics that can be difficult are, um, you know, the wife who managed the home, managed everyone else's health care, is now in, not able to do so. And now you have the other partner stepping in, usually the husband coming in to do that, and they just are clueless. Yeah. They, they don't know one thing from another. They're trying to take notes, but they forget things, and they call back the next day, and those... Those partners are trying their best, but they are very anxious because they're in a role that's so unusual to them, and they just don't know what to do. And they're watching their partner get worse and worse and worse and eventually pass away, and it's, it's really hard on them. ALS is highly challenging in terms of caregivers adjusting to meet patients' needs. Oftentimes, there is a clash in beliefs about the patient's physical capabilities. For example, the patient may be overconfident in their abilities, or the caregiver may be overly conservative. Melissa, the occupational therapist, gives a couple examples of how this dynamic plays out in discussions with patients. Two different patients that came in today and both had really interesting dynamics between the patient and their daughters, actually. Both of them were daughters. And a lot of, a lot of tension, a lot of disagreement on, like, the daughter had an idea of what was safe for the patient and the patient had a different idea of what was safe for them in both situations, two separate situations, and both basically ended up with the patients in tears and the daughters in tears, and it's really hard. Um, and so it's a lot of active listening and just sort of giving people space to like have those feelings and talk it out and kind of reiterating what my role is in that and sort of, but you know, based on one situation was on driving and one was on like using a lawnmower and kind of hearing both sides and then trying to help them come to an agreement or at least kind of like see how they can both work together to have a common goal that they're all happy with. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. And in those situations, was it the patient who was more confident in their abilities to drive or mow the lawn and the yes. daughter's a little bit more conservative? Yes. Yeah. So how do you sort of reconcile those differences in terms of your recommendations to so, patients? So, you know, I can do some objective measurements, specifically for driving, for example. I can look at strength. I can look at cognition. I can look at certain things that can clinically give me information that will tell me if they are safe to drive or not to drive. And so that's helpful to Give, then get that information and then my, my recommendation based on our clinical evaluation and same with some of the other safety concerns which was they were a little bit more related to cognitive insight and cognitive function so I can do some objective information you know measurements and then make a clinical decision based on that which can help with making you know having the family or the patient understand why the recommendation is being made. Beyond these examples, there are even more patient-family dynamics that arise with ALS. The disease is particularly challenging because of the unique situation it creates for patients and their loved ones. When interviewing the clinicians, another area that I found very insightful was their comments made about dementia. Almost all clinicians mentioned struggling to work with patients who have dementia and also needing to adjust their clinical practices. However, Sarah, the nurse practitioner, particularly enjoys working with dementia patients and has extensive experience with them. I love dementia patients. <laughs> if I wasn't working in ALS, I'd be working in a memory clinic. I absolutely love taking care of geriatric patients with memory changes. So to me, it's very easy. It's easier than some days with just ALS patients because it's something that I'm familiar with. It's something that I'm good at. It's, it's very easy to do. So you know, trying to help adult children navigate that change in role where mom isn't taking care of you anymore, you have to take care of mom. No, she can't make her own decisions anymore, you have to do it for her. That's really hard to make that switch from I am, I am viewed as child and you are viewed as parent to now having to take care of that person in that capacity. Yeah. So helping them navigate that and giving them 
suggestions for how to manage care at home. So for a lot of patients with dementia, giving an open-ended question is overwhelming. So you're either not gonna get an answer or you're going to get an incorrect answer or it's going to lead to an argument. So you don't say, what would you like for dinner? You say, we're going to have potatoes or carrots, which would you like? So you give two choices. Or you don't even give any choices at some points. So you just say, hey, we're having this for dinner. If you wanna have some, great. If they choose not to have any, that's fine too. We can find something else to eat. But it's finding paths of least resistance. We're not gonna argue about it. You're not gonna win that argument. Yeah. You will never win an argument <laughs> with a patient with dementia. So you need to let that go. You have way less control over the situation than you'd like, and that's okay. It doesn't have to be perfect. As long as they're safe and fed and clean, it's a good day. And it's really hard for some, you know, caregivers at the beginning of dementia to be okay with that yeah because they want to do everything the way that they had before and you just can't anymore a lot of the techniques for working with patients who have dementia such as asking yes or no questions are effective for all clinicians sarah the speech language pathologist describes using a toolbox of communication strategies for these patients and she still tries to communicate with the patient themselves it's the patient who you want to be communicating with even if there is cognitive decline you know still giving them a chance to ask questions and we have a whole toolbox of communication strategies so if someone is having trouble you know we know to offer choices or you know write down options or ask yes no questions so there are different things, tools that we can pull out, which I think we would try to try to see what they may respond to and then demonstrate that and point that out to family if we feel like they could use some of that guidance. Or the opposite, maybe the family absolutely knows them best and knows what works for them. And just being able to affirm that and say, look, I see you asking her questions and giving her time to respond, that's so great. And trying to point out the things that we see that look like they're working or offer suggestions if things don't seem to be working. Oftentimes, loved ones must step in and make decisions they didn't previously have to when a patient with ALS also has dementia. Interestingly, when the Duke ALS Clinic was founded, it didn't initially employ cognitive screening. Dr. Bedlack outlines how this change was implemented only after additional research was conducted on the connection between ALS and dementia. He also stresses the importance of addressing the family as a unit to ensure the decisions are made effectively. This is part of why we started doing cognitive screening on people. We didn't do that when I first started the clinic. And the reason is, at that time, you know, it was thought that only about 10% of people with ALS had any cognitive problems, and it was really obvious in those 10%. And then, you know, probably five to 10 years in, data started coming out that, wow, it's actually a lot higher. It's probably more like 50% of people with ALS have cognitive and or behavioral abnormalities. And most of the time it's subtle, but just because it's subtle doesn't mean it's not important. It tends to occur in something which is called the frontal temporal region of the brain. That's the part of the brain, which among other things is involved in complex decision-making. And if you think about it, man, it's just so ironic that that would be the part of the brain because I'd spent all those years building up this huge team and all these options. And some of them are really complex, as we've talked about. And now I learned that, man, a significant number of my patients are going to have difficulty making complex decisions. And it turns out there's actually data to suggest that it, it matters in terms of how people do. So people who have any degree of, of cognitive dysfunction do not live nearly as long, and they're far more likely to be hospitalized over the course of their illness. And I think the reason is they don't make good choices about the options, and they're not compliant when they do make a choice. And so now when we detect at that screening visit that someone has any degree of cognitive and or behavioral dysfunction, we change the whole dynamic in the room. So. If you've been in a room with me, you know that normally I pull my chair up close and I'm talking just like I'm talking to you directly to the patient and the family sitting off to the side. But if I find out that there's cognitive impairment, I pull my chair back and I say, I need to make you aware that the disease is affecting something other than just motor neurons. It's affecting your ability to make complex decisions. And now, you know, because of this, 
going to have to make these decisions together. And, you know, whenever possible, I try to insert some stories from my own life so that patients, you know, can get can get some perspective that I kind of know what they're going through. So I've, I've got a very sick parent. And the first thing I wanted to do when I heard about this is whatever she wants, it's going to be okay with me. I'm going to be there for her, but it's all up to her. Then I kind of realized she needs some help making these decisions. I can't just sit in the back seat. I got to get up front and I got to help her drive. That doesn't mean I'm going to, you know, force her to do anything, but I've got to help her. Like when, when we, when we leave clinic, I've got to remind her of the things that we talked about and the, the interventions that were discussed. And, you know, she may ask for my opinion. What, what do you think I should do? And I'll tell her. And so I explained to the families of patients, you're going to have to take a more active role in the decision-making. Um, and you're also going to have to take a more active role in compliance, which I've had to do with my own parent. So, you know, she doesn't want to use her walker and she's fallen and she's broken bones. And so I've got to constantly remind her, remind my dad to remind her. It isn't that she's being stubborn. It's that she doesn't remember why that walker is so important for her. And so it's not nagging. I remind my families, you know, of my patients, it's not nagging to remind that, you know, your loved one to take their medication, to use the piece of equipment, whether it's a something to keep them from falling or something to help them take deeper breaths. It's not nagging. They, they need constant reminders and encouragement to use this stuff. So it's, it's a different way of talking, not, not directly to the patient anymore, but, but to the patient and the family as a unit when there's cognitive impairment. It does make things more complicated. Another relevant aspect of caring for patients with dementia is that not all decisions made by family members are necessarily beneficial. Sue the dietitian describes how feeding tubes are empirically shown to not help patients with dementia in many cases. So it may be best just to let the patients wander with finger food in their hands rather than giving them a feeding tube. A lot of it has to do with feeding tubes, whether they should get a feeding tube or not. But you know, they've done a lot of studies that have shown that feeding tubes don't help patients with dementia. So putting in a feeding tube may or may not be the answer. And that's what I talk about with them too, especially if they have advanced dementia and they're really not understanding what's going on or they're just wandering and not paying attention. Then it's just, well, try to get them to eat what they can. And I worked in a, a long-term facility that had a dementia unit. And um, they, we used to do that all the time, Fing lots of finger foods, lots of supplements that they could just wander. and get their nutrition and not even realize that they're getting it. Before we move on to our final topic of societal change, I want to highlight a particularly insightful comment from Sue the Dietitian. She described how working in the clinic allows her to help patients live the best lives they can in the face of death. A lot of people ask me, how do you deal with this, with this you know, clinic? Like, why do you love this clinic so much? And you know, because all you see is death. And I'm like, well, that's not all you see. You see people. You see people struggling with a horrible disease and you want to try to help them any way you can. So it's not like I'm helping them to die. I'm helping them to live the best life they can that they have left. I just found that to be really powerful. Now, in terms of our final topic for today, I want to focus on some large-scale change that would improve the well-being of patients with ALS. The first area would be building community through more education for the general public. When people are aware of the disease, it creates a greater impetus for systemic change. This was suggested by Lily, the North Carolina ALS chapter social worker. Not losing that sense of community, not losing, you know, we are together with this, we are wanting to find answers. And, you know, I always tell anyone and everyone, be your own advocate, because what people don't know, they don't hear or see. And, you know, there's been folks who have really took that step to advocate, whether it's going to the news, like to their like local news folks, or, you know, writing to newsletters, things like that. They're getting the word across and then also talking, but then also reading, but everyone learns in such a different way about ALS, like the ice bucket challenge, people were dumping buckets on their heads and that's how they learned about ALS. But like, you know, 
really adventuring into different ways of educating about ALS, whether it's like hands-on activities or, you know, a small animation film. There's, there's Luca and the Lights. It's a short animation film that they're trying to get forward to, but I think also just education. You know, a lot of people can really learn from that. This type of education is highly effective because fictional works are powerful in evoking empathy. Hopefully, society at large can focus more attention on the ALS community. Secondly, a critical barrier to accessing treatment and care is a lack of insurance coverage. Dr. Bevlack describes the need to hold insurance companies accountable so that they provide coverage for drugs and in-home support. When you get a terrible disease like ALS, and I'm not sure there's any worse disease than this, it's, it's especially frustrating and angering to see the way insurance companies abandon you. That needs to change. I mean, we, you know, there was all this excitement about this new drug that we, that we got, Relivrio. I mean, it's the most exciting trial I've ever seen in the history of ALS. And, you know, we worked really hard this year, patient advocates especially, but many of us, you know, wrote letters and testified in front of the FDA. And we were so excited when we got it passed. I mean, it's, it's amazing to get the FDA to show regulatory flexibility, but they did. I mean, usually they're very rigid in terms of needing two large randomized double-blind placebo-controlled trials to approve a drug for any disease. But here they actually, they approved this drug with just one fairly small, fairly short trial, recognizing, you know, the, the nature of this disease, the horrific nature of it and the unmet need. Amazing. And then very quickly we learned that a lot of payers were not going to pay for it. So it's outrageous. Insurance companies reap record profits. You know, you drive down the road here in North Carolina and some of the nicest buildings belong to insurance companies. And yet the very first thing they do when a small number of people with a terrible disease have a victory is pull the rug out from under them and say they're not paying. It's terrible. And I mean, you know, it's, it's not just this medication. I mean, this is over and over again. We're constantly fighting for people to be able to have pieces of their wheelchair that allow them to raise their legs to reduce, you know, their risk of edema and DVTs and skin breakdown. You shouldn't have to fight for a piece of, piece of equipment like that to fight for non-invasive ventilators that give people a better quality and length to their life. Shouldn't have to fight for something like that to, to get home health. I mean, if the president of an insurance company came down with ALS, don't you think that the first thing they would want is to have somebody there in their home, a professional caregiver to help take care of them? Of course, yeah. you quickly realize that this disease not only beats up patients, it's maybe even worse on family members. Um, in terms of the impact that it has the physical and psychological impact and that could all be alleviated if insurance companies would just pay for the kind of help that people have you know people that they need in their homes and they don't they deny everything so it's it's unbelievably frustrating to me i mean there needs to be you know some sort of provision that every american gets for catastrophic care in a disease like this because um, it's it just it just doesn't sit well with me it's not going to bankrupt any insurance company, the small number of people and the dollars that we're talking about. They're still going to be able to reap their record profits every year and, and still, you know, they could take better care of people with diseases like this. So that's that's probably the single most frustrating thing to me that I see and that it needs to change. Yeah, absolutely. And do you think that to apply pressure to insurance companies that it could be possible to use like individual stories that assisted with the FDA approval, or is that something that really needs to be more of a profit analysis since the companies are just so profit-driven and that's their ultimate motive? Like, how do you think that policy can be lobbied for and pushed for in a way that will bring about meaningful change? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think, I think it can come from both directions, but to be honest with you, I think it's gonna change faster if we use stories and we use the power of, of media and social media to embarrass them. Yeah, I really definitely. do. I have to say that, but I, I feel like that's, that's the surest way to change. I'll give you an example of my greatest victory against an insurance company. So I had a young man who was struggling with that tough decision about whether or not to, to get the trach and be attached to a ventilator. And, you know, he would come with his beautiful young wife and his beautiful young kids. And, you know, he said, doc he said with a tear in his eye I so badly want to see my kids grow up but at the same time 
you know, my wife is struggling. I mean, she's, she's trying to work. She's trying to put herself through school in the evenings. You know, I can't ask her to give all that up and just become my 24 seven caregiver. And that's, what's going to happen if I make this decision. And I said, well, let's, let's start off by finding out exactly what your insurance company will pay for. And so, you know, they reached out and they, next time I saw them, they were ecstatic. They said, insurance company's going to pay for 24 seven care. I said, what? I mean, this is amazing. I, I can't, I've never seen this before. You must have some unusual policy that I've never seen. I said, just make sure that this is in writing, that they're going to cover all this. Sure enough, they had it in writing. So wow. he gets his trait, he gets attached to his van. You know, first 30 days are great. They got 24 seven care. Next thing I know, I get a call from his wife. She's in tears. We just got a letter from the insurance company. They made a mistake and we have 30 days to, to you know figure out what to do and then they're taking away all of his help he's not going to have any help at home so I mean this is what I was afraid of from the start that they would say that they, they don't pay for any help so you know they appealed the appeal was denied second level appeal is something called a peer-to-peer -peer appeal which means I got to get on the phone and and by the way if you've never actually been through a peer-to-peer -peer review this is kind of how it goes in the letter that comes from the patient, there's a phone number. If you if you want to do one more appeal, you have your doctor call this number and they'll do a peer-to-peer. -peer. You call that number, you get an automated menu. It makes you put in patient's insurance ID number. You have to put in your own sort of physician identifier number, your so-called NPI number. And by the way, you have to do this multiple times as you go through different menus until you finally get to the end and a person picks up and says, oh, you want a peer-to-peer -peer review. This is not the right number for that. Here's the right number for that. So you go through the process again and you finally get to the right person now and they tell you, oh, yes, well, of course you can have a peer-to-peer -peer review, but you know our doctors are very busy. So um, here's three dates and times that they can do this. You pick one of these and then they'll call you on your cell phone. Now it doesn't matter if none of these are convenient for you with your schedule, it's, you've got to pick one of these. So you give them a day and a time and they call you. And so this is how this conversation went. Hello, I'm Dr. So-and-so from this insurance company. I understand you want a peer-to-peer -peer review. Yes, this is the situation. Okay, doctor, well, just to read you from the policy, and he starts reading me from the policy. And I said, okay, I know what the policy says because I've seen the policy. Let's take a step back. What kind of doctor are you? There's a pause. I'm an excellent doctor. I said, no, I didn't ask you for the, <laughs> your, your self-assessed quality of being a physician. What is your specialty? Are you an ALS specialist? And how many years of experience in the field do you have? Another pause. He says, well, why is that relevant? I said, because in the policy, it says this patient is entitled to a peer to peer review. So my peer is an ALS expert, you know, with X number of years of experience in the field. If you're not that, then you're not a peer and you're not living up to the letter of the policy. You're not providing me with a peer to peer review. Another pause. Well, that's not the way that we interpret it. Okay. That's the end of that. Call the patient back, explain what happened. I say, I do have another one, one last thing that we can do. I happen to know a reporter for a major news network and you know, with your family, I mean, with this situation, I think this could be a primetime story about this insurance company. Um, and this whole concept of what is a peer for an insurance company. So she said, you know, whatever it takes, I mean, if you think this will help, call the, call the news. Absolutely, we're gonna run this story. It's gonna be prime time. We're gonna get this insurance company to send this physician. You, two of you can be on a panel together and America can decide if what this insurance company is doing is ethical or not. And if this really is a peer, great. Another hour goes by, I get a call from the patient's wife. Never gonna believe this. I just got a call from the CEO of the insurance company himself saying, I, I heard about what's going on and I'm appalled. Of course, we're going to take care of you 24 seven through the rest of this. I don't know how you got that second letter. That second letter must've been a computer generated error, but of course you have my word. So we never went on the news, but, but I mean, that's the power of, of what I would say is, is peer pressure. They would have been embarrassed and humiliated to go on the news for what they did to this patient and family and for what this, you know, for this person who is supposedly my peer 
who works at this insurance company and has this power to deny this without without really even having the expertise or the years of training that those kind of decisions require. And so, yeah, I mean, that's the way we're going about these absurd denials for the new medication is I'm talking to every you know person in the media that I can think of. I've just done an interview with the Washington Post and I showed them you know, a denial letter. Of course, I crossed out any identifying information, but I showed them the bizarre denial letter where this insurance company said, in our company, really is all is the first tier drug. And only if a person fails really is all can they have this, this new, more expensive drug. Well, this drug was meant to be an add-on to really is all. It was never meant to be either or. And what does failing really is all even mean? Really is all that the effect of really is all is to prolong survival. So therefore, failing really is all means you've died. So what is this insurance company saying? If you if you if you die, well then you fail really is all, so you can have this new medication. I mean, it just makes absolutely no sense from a science standpoint. It's a bizarre decision that someone made in a back room without thinking about science or humanity at all. It was made based upon thinking about dollars, and this needs to be dragged out into the public eye. And this insurance company needs to be embarrassed. Ultimately, insurance companies need to be held accountable so that patients with ALS receive the care they deserve. Thank you for tuning in today to ALS Allies, and check back soon for a second episode centered around research. Take care.